0: For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with Dr. Jasleen Chatwal, Chief Medical Officer at Sierra Tucson, about improving the way we talk with loved ones who express thoughts about suicide an audio postcard featuring record collectors who gathered for last week's HOKO Fest. Hear more about the current efforts to study and conserve the unique habitat of the organ pipe cactus. And Stories That Soar returns with All About Me, a story by a fifth grader named Manny. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The first story on this week's show is a conversation about suicide with a mental health professional and survivor who advocates for better communication about mental health and suicide prevention. Nothing graphic will be discussed, but we understand this topic is not appropriate for all listeners. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and while the problem persists, the conversation has been evolving. Joining me now is Dr. Jasleen Chatwal, a psychiatrist serving as chief medical officer at Sierra Tucson. Dr. Chotwal is also a survivor of suicide. Now that is a designation that can also be applied to anyone who has lost a loved one because they made that fatal choice.
1: I don't hide it. I I am somebody who's fairly open about that experience because I feel like that's part of reducing the stigma of suicide. Um, I lost my dad to suicide when I was 22. And so that has definitely shaped how I show up in my uh, personal and professional life.
0: First of all, I'm sorry for your loss. It must have been devastating. A person we had on the show just recently offered the thought that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And although solution might not be the right word there, I think we understand what they were trying to say. When your father made his decision. Do you feel like it could have been different if he had waited longer, six months, a year? Would his life have been in a better place, perhaps?
1: Definitely. I think, um, you know, again, one of the things that I will choose to comment on in the statement you made um, is that we talked about it being a decision. I'm not really certain in the research that I've seen or in my personal experience of having known Uh, people who've thought about suicide or completed suicide, that it really is a well-thought-out decision. It's oftentimes a very impulsive and sudden decision that's made. Um, There is some research on people who have attempted and then survived that attempt, and oftentimes even they will share that it was something that was decided in that very second when the attempt happened. So even though there can be some preparatory behaviors, it really is one of those things that happens very suddenly, and it is a permanent act that then changes the trajectory of many people's lives, not only the person who obviously ended their life. Partly even the National Institutes of Mental Health and part of us as clinicians who are trying to reduce stigma about suicide are trying to shift our narrative about it being a decision or a volitional act. It very much is something that's driven by the despair the person may be feeling in the moment or sometimes the despair that the mental health condition that they're dealing with makes them experience
0: just a choice made when things are darkest and one has a hard time seeing the light on the horizon I interviewed Kevin Hines who's an author and filmmaker and motivational speaker he's a suicide survivor he chose to end his life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and when he survived the Coast Guard was bringing him in and so they told the hospital about his condition they don't have too many jumpers who survive the fall And there was a nurse who was ready to receive Kevin when he got there. And she told him later, I knew it was you, and I knew you were my patient, because as soon as they opened the ambulance doors, I could hear you saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And I asked him if he remembered that, and he did. And he said that his regret began the instant that he left the bridge. What can you tell me about regret and how suicide survivors have a different aspect on the experience once they are survivors.
1: Most of the training that we do around suicide risk assessment when we see individuals who've attempted, um, that's a thing that all of us as clinicians really try to assess, is their regret? And if there is regret, that is really a big protective factor for that person. However, there are a small proportion of people who after attempting, if they're not able to complete suicide, may say that they do not regret it, and they are angry at the people who may have stopped them or saved them or found them, because even at that point, they want to continue with ending their life. And that to me speaks to the level of despair, the level of distress they may be in, the amount of suffering that they're going through. Uh, We know neurobiologically in your brain makes you see the world as being glass half empty. And so the fact that you have such a negative bias with a condition like that is why treating depression is so important and why depression does get linked with suicide is because even if you can practically think about all the amazing things that are there in your life, you're just not able to actually enjoy those. And your brain reward circuits are not functioning at their optimum. So you're not really being able to feel the pleasure of life. Um, And so I think when we're talking about an approach to preventing suicide, um, it obviously is treating the conditions that are diagnosed, which we know will reduce risk. And then there's the element of helping a person proactively see the positive things in their life. Uh, So sometimes what we do is a intervention, which we call a suicide safety plan. So if you know that somebody's struggling with thoughts of suicide, you actually have them write out a one-page safety plan, which makes them think through what type of thoughts come up for them before they go to thoughts of suicide. What are some things they can do on their own to distract themselves, take their mind off those thoughts? Who are people they can reach out to for, for support? And then finally, crises or helpline numbers to reach out to if if all those steps have been taken and they're still continuing to struggle. Suicide is the 12th leading cause of death in our country, and it is currently the second leading cause for young people. And these are young people who have their entire life ahead of them. And, you know, most of your listeners, and you might also know somebody who has died by suicide really early in their life as a young person, and that stains the experience of their family forever. Um, that's just something that is very, very hard to deal with. And different people do different things, like maybe putting their energy towards advocacy, trying to make sure that other people don't have to deal with the loss that they're dealing with. Um, and maybe that's partly what I'm doing in my life here.
0: I feel like one of the major issues you must run into is that depression is such a private condition. When I'm dealing with a bout of depression, I don't find advice helpful. There's hardly anything anyone can say to me that's going to make me see out of that well of depression.
1: Advice is not the way to go, right? We can't tell people how to feel. Right. It's actually one of the worst things to do is to say, hey, Mark, look at your life. Look at all these positive things and start counting down all the good things I see in your life, that's deeply invalidating of your experience. Our emotions are, you know, like pain. We're the only ones who can feel it. Other people can imagine, but don't really know. Um, so I think, along with validating that this is how a person feels, there is an important role all of us in the community play, not only mental health professionals in being able to let that person borrow some of your hope, to say, I I understand that I'm hearing from you. You're struggling so deeply. And I've seen that previously when this has happened with you, things have gotten better. We know things will change. And then being able to just provide support, love, and unconditional regard, no matter what you're going through.
0: We did touch on some signs that may indicate that a loved one might be at risk for suicide. Can you tell us what a couple of the most important ones are?
1: Uh, One of the biggest ones is a change in behavior. And with the behavior especially being um, towards being more socially isolated, not engaging as much, starting to talk about death or suicide is something that should be taken very, very seriously. So if out of the blue you hear your loved ones starting to talk about death or suicide, that is not a topic to brush away. I would really request that everybody and anybody who hear a person talk about that, engage with them around it. Um, more so to ask, you know, what are you thinking about? Since how long is this going on? Encouraging somebody to talk about those thoughts does not make them more real, does not increase the likelihood that the person will act on those thoughts. Oftentimes, that might be what they needed to start venting and talking about what's really driving that thought of suicide. Um, And oftentimes, um, I think the other piece can be the person talking about feeling like a burden, that they don't really feel like they have purpose or meaning in their life, and I think we started our conversation to some degree talking about uh, me losing my dad. I lost him when I was 22. In India, I was finishing medical school. I was still in my last year. I wanted to come to the U.S. to train. And suddenly, my brain would not work. Like, I couldn't study. I couldn't pay attention to anything. There was so much psychosocial chaos People did not really understand suicide, so there was a lot of speculation about what happened. And so just the amount of despair that I myself felt in that, um, sometimes I sit and think about it, and I'm like, like, I don't even know how I survived that. I don't know how I'm here today, because it was such a dark period. And to know that there's so many people out there who struggle with that on a day-to-day basis— And just in our country, we lose about 130 people every day to suicide. That is a massive number. So the funny thing is my mother-in-law usually laughs um, because wherever we go, I just say hi to people and I interact with them. She's like, gosh, you'll talk to anybody. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's partly the goal is to just connect with people. And if you can add one positive bit of energy to somebody's life, You never know what they were going through and what's happening to them. So I feel like whenever we're feeling okay, maybe it's our community prerogative to be kind. And Tucson is all about that. Be kind and connect.
0: If you or someone you know needs help, get in touch with the Suicide and Crisis Hotline by calling or texting 988. In Tucson, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is available at 520-622-6000. And the Hope Incorporated Warm Line is 520-770-9909. There is no shame in attempting to save a life, especially your own. Thank you to Dr. Jasleen Chotwal, Chief Medical Officer at Sierra Tucson. was a lot of nostalgia in the air at last week's HOKO Fest. One of the attractions was a record collector fair at Hotel Congress. And as always, the smell of vinyl and aging cardboard attracted record collectors from far and wide. Leah Britton was there and she sent back this audio postcard.
2: Hi, I'm Raul. I've been in Tucson since 1992 with a break for eight years. I've been back since 2010. And uh, I love Fest. I'm not a festival type of person. The fact that it's at Hotel Congress, which is one of my favorite places in Tucson, uh, that's very special to me. Yeah, I'm helping my friend Jordan from Desert Island uh, sell some records. We're record lovers, record collectors, and this is just a great time. We're just having fun talking to people. I bought some records, so, you know, it's all good. I love the fact that this family with two teenagers came in and we were talking about all... The, the rock bands from the 90s that the dad was buying to the new hip-hop and old hip-hop that the kids were buying. It was just amazing. Yeah, it was, it was fun.
3: Hi, I'm Glenn Burns Silver. I'm down here from Tempe, Arizona. Um, I am with Planetary Sounds. I sell records and CDs and tapes and all kinds of music-related things, which seems to be perfect for the arts and cultural festival that's going on here. It is my first time down here and I haven't had a chance to really get out and look around. I've been pretty much here at the Hotel Congress in the bar selling records, which has been fun, but we're getting all kinds of interesting people coming in who are really enjoying the festival and having a great time, and the spirit feels fantastic. So I'm looking forward to having some time to wander around and really see what's going on. I think it's just the whole arts culture uh, it's really strong here in Tucson. Uh, even though I don't live down here, I, I know that. And you can really see it in the room, the people who are coming in, uh, whether they're you know covered in tattoos or just in casual wear, people have an openness about them today, just having fun. The folks who are coming in, too, musically, looking through the records that I have, are all over the place. I have people asking for African records, for hip-hop records, for soul records, and classic rock. And then a guy freaks out because there's a German kraut rock record that he hasn't seen before. So it's very diverse. And I think people really enjoy themselves here. I mean, these festivals, whatever the cost, just bring the community out and bring it together. And I just hope people take that away when they leave and feel good about it. And when they say there's no more, they demand there's another one.
4: My name's Jacob Sullivan. I'm selling records on behalf of Wooden Tooth Records, which is a record store here in town that I co-own with a business partner. I think I've been to most, if not all of them. Uh, There was only one that I missed because I was out of town. It's been a lot of seeing friends and even family members perform and then eventually seeing it grow into something where it all culminated perfectly, where I was seeing artists with friends and local bands performing that I never thought I'd see share the stage. I think Hoko Fest has a way of tying in the local community that maybe other festivals don't. It's a music festival that could only exist in Tucson and could only be done by Tucsonans. You know, Tucson doesn't have a ton of music festivals, but definitely, this festival seems to be the one that everyone is performing or you know one of their friends bands is going to be the opening act for maybe a bigger show so yeah i think this festival ties in uh, the tucson community uh, really well i think i will miss the friends who come in from out of town for it um i mean this weekend for sure and, and in hoco Fest's past a lot of people travel for this festival but especially a lot of people who maybe have uh lived in Tucson and moved elsewhere. They seem to come back whether it's because their band's playing or a friend's band is playing. Uh, it, it seems to kind of bring everyone together for these like three or four days every year. And uh, it's always really nice. You get to catch up with people that you haven't seen in a few years. And uh, it'll be sad to, to not have a reason for everyone to come back on the same weekend.
0: That was an audio postcard from last weekend's HOKO Fest at Hotel Congress, produced by Leah Britton. Organ pipe cactus grow at their highest density only in Sonora, in a narrow band along the Gulf of California and the southernmost part of the state. Next, from the Fronteras desk, KJZZ's Kendall Blust takes us to a research station located in this unique habitat.
5: It's dusk at the Navopatia Field Station, and a cacophony of warblers, willets, and other birds fills the otherwise calm still evening. Navopatia is a small fishing town on the Hiabampo estuary near the Sonoran border with Sinaloa, and it's part of what's known as the pitayal costera, the densest concentration of organ-pipe cactus or pitayo dulce in the plant's range.
6: It's a unique ecosystem. It's not particularly large, but it is found nowhere else on the planet.
5: Michael Krzyzewicki is the director of the Navopatia Field Station. He's here to study the diverse resident and migratory birds in the coastal pitayal.
6: You'd be looking at snowy egrets, reddish egrets, white ibis, and long-billed curlew, and, and wimbrels out in front of you, and then you're hearing verdins and broad-billed and costas hummingbirds behind you.
5: Biologists opened the field station here nearly 20 years ago to collect basic data about an ecosystem that was poorly understood, he says. Since then, they've recorded more than 250 bird species and hundreds of plants. Each winter morning, the research team counts birds in plots scattered throughout the Pitay
6: so this is a 200 meter by 200 meter plot, and each time we visit, we try to take a different route throughout it, but still covering the majority of, of the space.
5: As we walk, this wiki looks and listens for birds, jotting them down on the clipboard.
6: It's a cactus red thing. There's also a northern mockingbird calling off that way. There's been a cardinal singing that direction.
5: Within 20 minutes, we've spotted 12 species. This plot was previously clear-cut for a failed shrimp farm. Some have been impacted by cattle grazing, others are undisturbed. The comparison helps researchers understand how land use changes impact birds and the ecosystem.
6: By studying a bird community, you can understand what's happening at multiple levels of the food
5: chain. That can help efforts to preserve this stunning habitat. Towering columnar cactus meet leafy coastal mangroves and calm waters where bottlenose dolphins dive just off the shore. It's rapidly disappearing. Forty percent has been lost since the year 2000,
1: says. Yo llegué en says.
5: Field station cook Guadalupe Mendivel needs tortillas for that night's dinner. She says her family arrived in Navopatia in 1960, when there were just a handful of houses on the edge of the dense pitayo forest. She wishes it could go back to the way it was, she says. Though still remote, clear cutting for shrimp farms and agricultural fields has eaten up many of the native plants her family uses for food and medicine. And irrigation from those fields regularly floods the dirt roads, making Navopatia harder than ever to access. <inaudible> Fewer tourists come here now," says her brother Luis Fortino Mendivel. He's mending a mist net researchers use to catch birds so they can gather demographic information and tag them with tiny metal bands.
1: Qué bueno que
5: the arrival of the field station changed his life, he says, offering him opportunities to visit new places and learn about birds and ecotourism. And it's also the best chance they have to preserve what's left of the pitayal.
6: It's hard to understand the value of a place like this unless you spend time
5: here. So Krizwicky says they bring in student groups, ecotourism, and interns from both the U.S. and Mexico.
7: A la vez como, wow. No, tenía idea que, que estaba esto,
5: Enrique Sánchez interned at Navopatía this winter. He calls it a hidden treasure. It's 6.30 in the morning, and we're kayaking across the estuary to Isla Mazocari to do a bird count on a remote plot of island pitayal surrounded by mangroves. Roseate spoonbills and yellow-crowned night herons perch on the branches, and a mangrove warbler flits through the long roots. Sanchez says he'll never forget holding, and being bitten, by his favorite bird, the cardinal. He wants more people to get that experience and to see just how special this place is before its range shrinks much further.
6: Because it's a habitat type that's found nowhere else, I think it's worth saving because it's a part of our global biological and cultural heritage.
5: At Navopatia, they'll keep working to understand and conserve the pitayal. I'm Kendall Blust reporting from Navopatia.
0: The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of multi-talented performers called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the potential of bringing their stories to life in other mediums. Next a story called All About Me by Manny, a fifth grader at Sam Hughes Elementary. Manny wants to tell you about himself and how he enjoys having fun with yo-yo tricks, bike riding, and soccer, all while living with a rare type of cancer. It is slowly taking away Manny's ability to see.
7: My name is Manuel, but people just call me Manny. I was born with a rare cancer called retinoblastoma. It makes it really hard to see in one or both eyes. Symptoms of it are pupils that appear white instead of black in photos, crossed eyes, problems with vision or total loss, different colored irises, and more. Hey, Manny. Hi, Dad. Dad, come here. Come here. My dad is blind in both eyes because of a sickness him and I have called retinoblastoma. Retinoblastoma. My dad has long hair. And likes to wear white because it makes him feel clean. Feeling fresh, feeling clean. My dad loves music. His favorite type is Cuban music. One, two, three, four. He is also a DJ. <laughs> Bye, Dad. I'm going out. Now you know about my dad. I like a lot of things. I like to yo-yo. I like to ride a bike. (laughs) Hey, Manny. What's up, dude?
2: Manny. Hi, guys.
7: I like my friends.
2: Come on, let's go play soccer.
7: I like to play soccer. Go! And I like to eat. <laughs> lunch time. Let's
5: go to lunch. Let's go to lunch. Come on, let's go. Are you ready Come for lunch?
7: On. I'm really hungry. Yeah, no, hold on, guys. Hold on. I just need to say one thing. This is all about me. <laughs> wait up, wait up.
0: That was All About Me, written by Manny, a Sam Hughes fifth grader. Go Huskies. You can watch the accompanying video on the spotlight page at azpm.org. Aspiring student-age writers can submit their stories to the Magic Box Story Portal now at literacyconnects.org. Listen for more stories that soar every month on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.
2: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.